So our story for this morning is answering the question, who is the greatest? And if you turn in your Bibles, otherwise follow on the screen to Mark chapter 9. The same story is also found in Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 9. Now Luke's gospel records this story as happening immediately afterwards, after the last story I dealt with, which was the healing of that uh, young boy uh, who was demon-possessed that we dealt with a couple, two weeks ago. Um, and then this story comes up in Luke's uh, timeline. But let's pick it up this morning in Mark, Mark chapter 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? <laughs> it mean walking along from the previous high or low of watching D Jesus take care of this demon that they didn't have the faith to take care of that we spoke about last time. So they're walking down the road and they're arguing about something. And Jesus is fully aware of this. And he says to them, what are you arguing about? Now he knows what they're arguing about. But like he always does to us, he puts his finger firmly on something and tries to elicit a, uh, a response. Ha, guilty. They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. Then he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Let us pray. Lord, we commit the reading of your word in prayer this morning, trusting as always it would not just be some nice little thing, but something that impacts us very deeply and very definitely in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm having a problem with the sound, but I know what happens. As soon as I put on five kilograms, it, because the thing's behind me, it can't get through me. I, I think the battery's fine. And I thought when I put a jacket on this morning, I thought I'm probably going to have a sound problem because now it's got five kilograms extra of stuff to get through plus a jacket. So I'm going to leave it over here and hope that it doesn't fall. If it goes again, then just let me know. I can hear when it comes and goes. Okay, so let's answer the question, what makes someone great? What makes someone great? We here on earth tend to equate greatness with personal achievement, with success, or with power. And very often the world has very clear guidelines it wants us to follow regarding greatness and these all have to do with what's bigger what's better what's longer what's stronger what's taller or whatever the case might be however Jesus comes along and he turns this completely upside down asserting that to be truly great requires humility true greatness is not found in first but it's found in lost. 
No amount of my achievement, of my arrogance, of my self-confidence, or anything else is going to cut it with God. Those of my generation will remember the former heavyweight boxing champ, also regarded as perhaps the greatest heavyweight ever. Born Cassius Clay, and his name was? Muhammad Ali. Oh, we've got a whole bunch of old people here this morning. <laughs> At his first heavyweight title, the brash underdog Muhammad Ali promised his fans that he would do what? Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Remember that? Against Sonny Liston. And at the age of 22, he stunned the larger Liston, beating the champion seven rounds in Miami to win his first ever heavyweight title. He would often brag, I am the greatest. Well, the story is told of this one who was the greatest being on an airline flight, an air, uh, air flight. And just before the flight, the airline stewardess came up to him and said, Sir, we really need you to put on your seatbelt. And Ali is reputed to have said, reported to have said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the air hostess very quickly fired back, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> and evidently he very obediently fastened his seatbelt. Now humility and selflessness are marks of the believer in Christ. And since we all know this, it seems incredulous that the apostles were arguing over this very issue. Surely they, of all people, should have known this lesson. Here they are, as they walk along the road, thinking Jesus can't hear them, arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? I am. I'm, I mean, it's just like, uh, who would do that? Jesus knows what they're discuss, discussing, and he uses this to teach them about childlike humility. A lesson, by the way, that he had to keep teaching them. They never got it right. We see several occurrences in the scripture of the same story being repeated. For example, on one occasion, the mother of James and John came to Jesus to ask that her sons could sit on the left and right one day in the kingdom. And that wasn't so much the issue. The issue was the other disciples were indignant. They were the hanging. I mean, who, who are they to think that they should sit there, thinking that, believing that they should sit there? At that occasion, or another occasion, uh, we see Jesus, oh, the same occasion, I beg your pardon, in Mark 10, 45, he says the following, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see several of these lessons. But I think part of this morning is to get to understand that just when we think we've learned it all, someone comes along and bugs us. And then I start thinking, but I'm a better servant of Christ than he is. I mean, we might not get into a verbal debate, but the thought is often in our hearts. I mean, what right have they got to say this or to do that or to etc.? I'm, I'm better than they are. So we have to keep coming back to this fundamental lesson to answer the question for ourselves, 
who is the greatest? And the answer is simply, the greatest in God's sight are those who humbly serve. The greatest in God's sight are those who humbly serve. Three little lessons that I want to bring out this morning from the passage regarding servanthood. The first is obviously that Jesus is our prime example of servanthood. Jesus is the one who we need to follow. In verse 35 we read, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus isn't standing on a pedestal high above the rest of his disciples saying, Oh, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. He demonstrates the principle of servanthood over and over again. In John's Gospel, we read of that event during the Last Supper where, in fact, he girds himself with a towel, takes a basin of water, and washes his disciples' feet, an activity that was reserved for the lowest of the low in the slave order of slavery. Even though he alone deserves eternal supremacy, he faithfully and consistently served as a servant, as lost. don't know how many of you have heard of the Andromeda galaxy. With very little amplification, you can locate it. It's about 200 million light years away from Earth. A light year is the distance that light travels in one earth year. Now life, light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. So every second light travels 300,000 kilometers. The earth's circumference is a little over 40,000 kilometers around the equator, the, the, the middle of the earth, 40,000 kilometers, which means that light can travel seven and a half times around the earth in one second. That's how fast light's going, okay? Seven and a half times it'll go around the earth just in one second. Now, I'm trying to explain to you how far the Andromeda galaxy is. One light year is about nine trillion kilometers. The fastest spaceship probe ever to travel, Juno probe, traveled at 265,000 kilometers an hour, and it would take that craft four 4,073 years to travel one light year. The Andromeda galaxy is 200 million times 9 trillion kilometers away. It's furthermore composed of 200 million suns much brighter than the only one sun we've got. Over 200 million suns in that galaxy. Even the most powerful telescope, Hubble te telescope, or whatever it is now, can't get anywhere near to the end of the universe. And this same Jesus, who demonstrates for us servanthood, created all of this stuff and keeps it all going. 
the Lord of glory left his splendor of heaven and came and showed us how we are to behave. He rightly could have come in all his splendor, like we see some of these alien space movies, and they arrive and they just take over the earth. I mean, he could have come and just said, do this, do that, do the next thing. He never did that. He never demanded our instant allegiance or anything else. Instead, he took the form of a servant. This universe that is immeasurably bigger than our explanations can begin, created by that one coming to us as a servant. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians and says, your attitude, some of your translations say this mind, but the word is not mind, it's attitude. Your attitude should be the same of that as Christ Jesus, your hodom. Your way of thinking should be the same of that as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's our example. That's the one that we get our inspiration from. This creator of the universe and his demonstration of being lost, that's our inspiration. See, his willingness to serve did not in any way rob him of his ultimate authority. All it did was rubber stamp it. It just said, this is it. This is how it works. This is how things operate. Even his many trials and tribulations, through all of them, he still served. I mean, think about what Jesus went through. His time in the wilderness, his suffering up to the crucifixion, the hundreds of millions of times he must have resisted temptation for us. The times he was so frustrated with his doubting disciples. Will they ever get the picture? Will they ever understand what I'm trying to tell them? Eventually landing on the cross. The writer of the Hebrew says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up loud, loud prayers and tears and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Isn't it true that there are many who will only serve God as long as there's no opposition? As long as things are going smoothly, as long as everything in my life is hunky-dory and nothing's out of kilter and everything's good and everybody's been nice and kind to me and nobody's saying anything nasty, and then I'm, I'm prepared to serve Lord, the Lord. But man, watch my flesh rise up the moment somebody says something. Jesus faithfully served, although he was often lonely and misunderstood. His fellowship with the Father would have been his sustaining factor when no one else was with him. And friends, Jesus is our prime example of servanthood. So, let's not leave him. 
The second thought out of this passage, I think very strongly, is the element of self being the enemy of servanthood. The see the disciples squabbled came from one source, self. No, no sense in blaming the devil here. It came from them. They were arguing along the road. It came out from inside. You might, might or might not have heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer who was instrumental in the Reformation, the rediscovery of truths uh, for, of the church where the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church had taken the church off kilter completely. He's attributed with saying, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's my issue, Pope self. Pope self is usually always the problem in any problem or issue. James asks the question in James 4.1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't blame the devil. Don't blame the person who's causing it. Don't they come, James says, from your desires in you. Selfish desires always will lead us into conflict with one another. And that's why Jesus spells out at the very beginning to all of us as a requirement if we're going to be his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Daily. We're just never going to get this lesson. As long as we are in this body, Pope self is going to be a problem. As long as we are living upon this earth, Pope self is going to rise up. I'm better than. I'm holier than. I'm more humble than. You know, we're so arrogant sometimes, we, we're even blinded to the fact that we can say, I'm more humble than that person. You just lost the plot, Pope self. A daily habit, unfortunately, I wish it was a once-for-all decision, but it's not. Self keeps rearing its ugly head, even in those who have tried to kill that monster for many years. Even the most mature people will continue to battle with self. And what doesn't make it any better is that we live in a selfie generation. It is. It's all about promotion, building myself up. We have this innate desire somehow to scatter pictures of ourselves and our achievements for the world to see. Look at me. My lips are bigger than yours. Yeah. I think one of the most remarkable deceptions that the enemy has managed to pull off is to infect the church with the notion that we're supposed to build up our self-esteem. Many of your mega churches, that's all they preach, is self-esteem. 
J.C. Ryle, a 19th century teacher, preacher, and author, viewed self-esteem as a deep-rooted evil. I don't want to make a, a, a ruling on this, but to me it makes a lot of sense. He comments, ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts and often in the hearts where they are least suspected. Another giant in the faith, John Calvin, frequently warns in his writings against the evil of self-love. He says there is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly than to be flattered. How we love to be flattered. Rather than pouring the petrol of self-esteem on our propensity towards pride. Don't you like that? Rather than pouring petrol of self-esteem on our propensity towards pride, we should rather, in the words of the great hymn writer Isaac Watts, pour contempt on all our pride. You know the hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt disgust, revulsion on all my pride. I've got nothing to offer him. So here these guys are arguing about who's the greatest. They're just doing what men by nature are prone to do so, competing for first place. Unfortunately, we live in that society where if you don't compete, you're not going to get on. I mean, if you don't do well at school, you're not going to get that bursary. If you're not going to be better salesperson than that salesperson, you're not going to get the promotion. And so it goes on. That's how sports teams win championships, by competing and by conquering. And we live in this climate of competition. But I want to encourage you today that in the church, we pour contempt on our pride. We don't bring the worldly culture into the church. Rather, we recognize our equality in Christ not aimed at competing with one another. I'm better than, I'm more humble than, I pray more than, I do this better than, I da, 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 da. Pride, 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 it stinks. Do want to mention that we mustn't get confused. There is such a thing as biblical leadership. The Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority, but that authority never lords it over people. Biblical authority never demands recognition or status or titles. It should always model servanthood. Friends, our great enemy of servanthood is self. Pour some contempt on it. And lastly this morning, his grace is a key to servanthood. I see in this passage an amazing demonstration of God's grace. Even though Jesus must have been grieved over this petty, repeated quarreling among the apostles. And even though he knew the time was coming, they would soon all forsake him. He still graciously sits them down and teaches them using the object lesson of the young child. He's like a father who's trying to teach his young child some new task. 
This child might fail or not do it perfectly, but the dad just keeps patiently encouraging. Not like that, like this. Don't do it like that. Do it like this. As I reflect on my own ministry, I'm overwhelmed that God would allow me to shepherd his flock. I'm overwhelmed. I'm deeply appalled sometimes at the stupid things I've taught and some of the mistakes I make. Even now, I often wonder how he can still use me. But this one thing, God's grace encourages me to go on. It's his grace. It's not Paul's pride. It's his grace that sustains me. It's his grace that empowers me. It's his grace that enables me to keep going. Never for a moment think that I'm not often discouraged, that I don't often feel like walking away. This week was one of those weeks. But for his grace. I heard a quote last night or the early hours of this morning that really spoke to me. The best of men are at best, men. The best of men are at best men. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how mature you are. Doesn't matter how long you've been a believer or anything else. At best, you're still a human being. Subject to this horrible thing called pride. And without his grace, we, we've got nothing Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a message of Satan. We don't know what that thorn is to torment me. It might have been people. It might have been a physical complaint. We don't know what it is. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So if you're feeling this morning like you can't, good. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's the best place to be in. Why? Because now his grace kicks in. That person that irritates the pants off you. That person that you do duck in the spa. You know that one? You know that one? I... I was rebuked on Wednesday night because of, uh, Pastor, you say some things from the pulpit, you know, Pastor shouldn't say. Like when you go to the supermarket, you see somebody you hide and you run around that aisle. Well, I still do. <laughs> you know that person? <laughs> he comes along and he says to us, good, my grace is sufficient for you. You're not going to get it right by yourself. John 1.16, for the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. It's his grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's because of his grace. 1 Timothy 1.14, the grace of the Lord was abundantly poured out on me along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 4 is a challenge. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We are bearers of his grace. We are administers of his grace. 
Let there be love shared among us. Let there be love in our eyes. Let his love come through us. If anyone speaks, speak the very words of God. If he serves, do it with the strength that God provides. In all things, God may be praised. To him be glory forever. Friends, everything is because of him. Nothing is of my doing, only of his, and never forget it. In light of the disciples' disputes, their desires to be first and not last, their ongoing failures as true, that is sheer grace. Jesus sits down with them, with a little child, and says, this is how it works. The reality is one day we will be rewarded far beyond what we deserve. That's the reality. I mean, if we receive anything, it's an eternity beyond what we should receive. You get to heaven because of his grace. And if in heaven he gives you some crowns or some other awards or whatever, whatever, the least, the least in heaven is going to be astounded by the generosity of God. No one will ever get to heaven and think, you mean I sacrificed and worked so hard for this measly reward? We're going to be thinking God has been far more gracious and generous with me than I could ever deserve. If we could just understand what he has prepared for us, perhaps we would all be greater in understanding what the Apostle Paul means when he writes, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. His grace is the key to servanthood. To conclude, I read about a church that has a hand-lettered sign, not a fancy one in lights or anything else, just a handwritten sign over the door into the sanctuary, the only door in and out, and it says the following, Servant's Entrance. Servant's Entrance. There isn't any way in or out of that church except through the service door. That's how every church should be. It's a place for servants only. So, who is the greatest? The greatest are those who humbly serve as Jesus did. Amen.